0: Welcome to Intelligence Squared, I'm Connor Boyle. Coming up on the podcast, Eugene Linden, the environmental journalist and author who has been warning of the climate catastrophe for decades. We'll be finding out, have we started listening too late? Author and journalist Eugene Linden has focused on climate-related issues as well as science and nature for much of his career. His latest book is Fire and Flood, a people's history of climate change from 1979 to the present. It not only tells the story of environmentalists and scientists sounding the alarm since the late 70s when US President Jimmy Carter was presented with a report that helped push the climate debate into the mainstream, But the book also highlights the complacency and denial during the past few decades, which has helped contribute to the difficult conditions many locations around the world face today. Our host for the podcast is The Economist and broadcaster, Linda Yu. Here's Linda with more.
1: Eugene, a very warm welcome to you. Thank you so much for joining us to discuss your new book. And I'm just going to start with that. Tell me why you wrote this book.
0: Well,
2: Why I wrote it and the trigger for it are two different things. I I wrote it because I've been writing about climate change since the late 80s. And so I realized I was a witness to the unfolding, what I hope will not be a tragedy um, in the future uh, from the get go. And I I thought that somewhere down the road, my grandchildren peering out of their caves might want to know how it how it was that we blew it and why and why we failed to take action on an issue, even though we had decades of warning about it um, as of of now. The trigger, however, was a little different. In 1994, I wrote an article for Time Magazine in which I discussed the insurance industry and climate change. And back then I thought the insurance industry was gonna turn out to be the white knight of climate change because they live and die by pricing risk accurately and that they would pass on this pricing for the climate risks of increased storms, sea level rise, fires, floods, um, to uh, homeowners and businesses and people would adjust. And it turned out that they would turn out to be a very timid white knight. Um, Whereas with seat belts and electrical standards, the insurance industry would be lobbying Congress in the United States to take action. They didn't do that with climate change. Indeed, the reinsurance end the end of the insurance industry that ensures catastrophic risk has been brilliant on climate change. They've done wonderful studies. They've tried to assess the economic impacts and the derivative impacts and uh, produced a lot of conferences and studies that have helped uh, everybody a lot. But the retail end continued to write policies um, for people who you'd say are in harm's way long after the... uh, changes of climate change have become manifest. And what triggered me to write this was in 2018, there was a massive fire in Northern California. It's called the Camp Fire. It caused $12.5 billion in damage. Um, and the New York Times quoted the, the senior lobbyist for the insurance industry in California saying, we're scrambling to understand this risk. And I read that and I thought, what? You understood this risk 25 years ago. so. Why is it that you didn't act then? Because in the interim, millions and millions of people moved to the vulnerable coasts, moved into the fire zones, and moved into the flood zones, all under the assumption that climate was not going to be a risk, or at least it wasn't going to be priced in. So that's really the reason uh, that I thought, I've got to, exploring why that happened would be a very interesting uh, exercise to undertake.
1: In terms of your brother, You write that he owned an insurance agency and you yourself worked at a hedge fund. So just tell me a little bit more about how this has shaped your views, your book, your writing.
2: Well, after I read that article about them scrambling to understand the risk, I called my brother and I said, wait a second, how is it you get paid? (laughs) Because he owned a little insurance agency. And he said, well, you know, that they would continue to write policies until uh, you, until they weren't backstopped, until somebody, uh, until the pricing, if the pricing rose, they'd pass on the pricing. But you always assume that the risk was in the pricing. And your incentive is to continue to write policies until you can't, because your profit sharing is based on past performance. And so you have this incentive, even if you know disaster is coming, to keep writing policies. And the other thing about it is that most insurance policies, at least in the United States, are renewable on a yearly basis, and so they have a get-out-of-jail-free card. They can either up the prices if they can, or or not renew a policy um, if if the, if it looks like disaster is going to become more frequent. And so the incentive, I mean, and this is a a, 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 a kind of paradigm for the entire business community, the. What it showed me was that the incentives for business as usual are absolutely enormous. um, Because your incentive is not to worry about climate change, your incentive is to write as many policies as you can. Same with almost all businesses. But the net effect of that is it basically leaves us blind to long-term threats. If the insurance industry, which is right on the front lines of risk for climate change, can't really adjust, Um, even as the risk has become manifest, what other industries can't? Most of them. And so that seemed to me to point to a a kind of frailty of the way we do business that leaves us vulnerable to long-term threats such as climate change.
1: One more question around your travels. You have been to the Arctic and Antarctica. How did they, how did these trips shape your views?
2: The conventional wisdom when I went to Antarctica was still that climate changed at a stately long-term pace. There was, they had already been published for a few years, um, studies that showed that climate doesn't change at a stately pace, rather it changes, it can change quite rapidly because what had happened was that um, studying the ice cores from both Antarctica and, and, and Greenland, um, they the proxies for understanding press, past climates became sufficiently refined that they could actually see rapid change in the ice core record. It wasn't that it wasn't there. It's just that in the 80s and the 70s, you didn't have proxies with the precision to see those rapid changes. Now they did. So in 93, all this work was published and it began, it's sort of at the edges of the climate community. People began to say, yeah, well, maybe the climate changes rapidly. When I was in Antarctica, I did a cover for time on that. Um, there, I was out on the West Antarctic ice sheet and I talked to a bunch of uh, climate, glaciologists, and climate scientists who were saying, well, the ice streams in the West Antarctic ice sheet looked like they were speeding up. Everybody back then thought the ice sheets would be stable for hundreds of years or more. Um, but there were signs that something was happening. Um, and again, in the Arctic, the same thing. And so what you saw was a transition in the climate science community um, from understanding that climate change was way off in the future and was gonna be slow to understanding that, gee, this is happening now and it could be quite rapid. The old model for climate change was that it was like a dial that you slowly turned up. The new model was like it was like a switch. The problem, of course, was that if it's like a switch and changes are already becoming manifest, it meant we didn't really have time to much time to react in order to stave off changes in, in climate.
1: You write in the book that this book is not for those who think that climate change isn't a problem. So tell me why you suggest that for those people, instead of reading this book, they should start an insurance <laughs> company selling flood and storm insurance.
2: Well, because if, if they're right, and we aren't experiencing a uh, a, a deepening change in climate. They can underprice and go in. Nobody else is writing policies in some of these areas and make a fortune. I suspect, however, they'll be bankrupt if they do that. In fact, that's what the insurers did. Uh, what has happened, in, in the States at least, is that um, many of the insurers uh, said, we're out of town <clears throat> once they saw that the risks, uh, they couldn't price in the risk of, 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 of uh, sea level rise and, and storm insurance at at the uh uh, in in the vulnerable areas or for fires in the fire zones of the west um and what that meant was the states and and the federal government in the u.s picks up the flood risk the states stepped in to pick up the wind risk or the fire risk and they still underpriced the risk and you, you know they underpriced it because in florida um the citizens property insurance Entity that picked up all that fire, uh, flood risk, uh, sorry, wind risk, um, very rapidly became the largest assurer in the state, meaning that they were, by definition, underpricing it if everybody was going to them. So, and of course, that again incentivized millions more people to move into vulnerable areas. Uh, so anyway, I I, I wrote it and and I said, somewhat tongue in cheek, it's not for you if you don't believe in chi- climate change, because. At this point, if you don't believe in climate change and is a threat, you're not going to believe in climate change as, as, a, as a threat, at least until it hits your
1: pocketbook. Um, Eugenia, it was absolutely fascinating to read in your book about renewables during the Victorian era. And you asked the question in the book, what derailed renewables in the year 1900? So, do tell our listeners uh, the answer to that.
2: Well, you're right. I mean, back the turn of the last century, there was a veritable renaissance in exploring all types of renewables. Solar. Thomas Edison wanted to capture the tidal power, the, t- the power of the Gulf Stream, eight, eight billion gallons a minute, going five miles an hour, fifteen miles off the Florida coast. He had that idea. Um, all sorts of. People are exploring steam power, wind power. Geothermal, of course, goes back a long time. And then it all stopped. Why did it stop? Um, Something better came along. 1908, there was a huge discovery of oil in Iran. Then a couple of decades later, you had these other great discoveries. And you had this compact fuel um, that was easily transportable and just almost like a miracle. Um, You could do so many things with it and with gas. And uh, research on renewables basically went into a coma for 70 years, um, began to come out of the coma after the Arab oil embargo. Um, and then, of course, during, and uh, this is in the States, during the um, uh, the Carter years. And for a while, the U.S. actually led on research on uh, on renewables. Uh, we passed that baton to Europe, uh, Great Britain, Japan, um, during the Reagan years, where, where The administration couldn't care less about climate change and indeed set back research on solar by about 10 years. And then, of course, in the 90s, uh, we're back and looking at renewables again. But um, we're also, throughout this period, just pushing coal as well. Um, And that's that's the sort of irony of this, is because we gave this mixed message. uh, I say in the book that I think the battle to control climate change was lost in the 90s, uh, the early 90s, because that's when the decisions were made by India and China to industrialize with coal. Um, In 1990, um, China produced about 3.4 billion tons of greenhouse gases from coal. Um, 1918, they produced 11 billion tons of greenhouse gases from coal. And had they chosen a different development path, had we spoken with one voice to China and other emerging economies back then, had we actually put the effort into renewables that we could have done, um, you know, the world would be a different place today. But we didn't.
1: I want to come back to you in the 1990s in a moment, Eugene, because that is, as you say, a crucial decade. Um, Eugene, you describe the world as having four clocks, each running at a different pace, the clock of climate change reality ticks in real time. The scientists are about mid-decade. The public is in the 1990s. And until very recently, you're right, the financial community remained stuck in the 1980s. What is going on?
2: Well, that, I, I use that device to try and unpack what happened in a comprehensible way. But first, we have reality. And of course, we began to see hottest years in the 80s, six out of the 10 years, were among the ten hottest years ever recorded, but even back then, I mean, back then it was it was not clear that you could disentangle the the um, the noise from the signal. In other words, it might have been random variation. By the 90s, it which again had year after year after year of record-breaking heat, um, it became clear that something new was going on, um, and then of course we uh, in the 2000s, t- 2010s, we began to see a lot more. Then we've uh, record fires around Australia and, and the United States, Siberia, all over the world. Um, you know, uh, anomalous storms and ugly surprises, like, um, for instance, uh, rapid intensification of hurricanes. Um, we see hurricanes going from category one to category five in a matter of 24 hours, which really hadn't happened before. It, also, duration, storms coming into an area um, and dumping of inches of rain just because they were moving so slowly. And so all these things were, began to be happening. The scientific community um, w- was given the impossible job of trying to understand a phenomenon even as it's unfolding. Um, in other words, they're trying to, they come up with the paradigm of rapid climate change even as we're undergoing a rapid climate change event. Um, and they so have a structural lag to reality just by the nature of science. You've got to gather the data, you have to analyze it peer review it, then publish it. So it's a couple of years behind reality. The public is basically influenced um, by the financial community um, and by the scientists to some degree, um, but mostly it was disengaged. And um, you know, I, give, saying the public was in the 90s um, when we were in the 2010s on climate change was actually giving them more credit than due. The public Um, even a couple of years ago, 45% of people polled by Gallup said that they didn't believe they'd see serious consequences from climate change in their lifetimes. This is even as we're seeing serious consequences from climate change. That's a fascinating story because what happened um, is that the business community, my fourth clock, got involved in the story early on um, and realized they felt that regulation would be a threat to profits. And so the uh, fossil fuel industry sort of led the way but other industries joined in and and at every turn fought regulation related to climate change and were a drag anchor and uh, they used a playbook um, this is the business community that was uh, basically designed to fight regulation of tobacco and then find regulation of uh, fight regulation of ozone harming chemicals and but They didn't just mobilize with climate change. They basically mounted a blitzkrieg. And the playbook involved, you know, dispute the science, dispute the consensus, dispute the motives of the scientists, but most of all, say we have time. And if you say, let's continue to study something, we have time, you're never going to act on it. So the public, um, but then one other thing happened at the end of the 90s that was, I think, the worst thing of all. And that was the issue became politicized. With the passing of the Kyoto Treaty, business thought, oh, this regulation is coming. And so they began to paint climate change as part of a liberal agenda. And this is in the English-speaking countries, the UK, Canada, the United States, and Australia. Um, you saw a denial movement. And you saw a kind of partisanship enter the debate on climate change. Um, and the problem is, as we've seen with COVID, uh, you know, in bold relief, is that once an issue becomes politicized, the facts don't matter. If the messenger is deemed to be illegitimate, um, you aren't, you're just going to tune out. And that's one of the reasons I said that at the beginning of the book, um, because chances are, if you don't accept climate change at this point, it's not because of the science, it's because of partisan reasons. Um, And so the the business community was probably the most underappreciated, but the most consequential clock of all. And for most of the climate change era, they viewed regulation as a threat. In recent years, however, there's been a dramatic change, at least among the larger businesses, the large financial institutions and the multinationals now see climate change itself as a threat to business. And uh, it's late, but it's nothing but good.
1: I want to come back to that um, because you structure the book by decades. So I'm going to ask you a sequence of questions around the decade. So first, I want to take you back to 1979. Then U.S. President Jimmy Carter was presented with a report by scientists showing how human activity might be adversely affecting the climate, you write. Quote, a wait-and-see policy may mean waiting until it is too late, the report said. They were right, but no one was listening. You also include this quote. In the White House, there's always something more urgent. So <laughs> tell me about how successive U.S. governments delayed action on climate change.
2: Well, that, that is another of uh, the, the, the tragedies <clears throat> of this story, and that is that Carter, of course, um, he was open. It. He was a nuclear engineer, so he was open to the science of climate change, and he appointed very good people, and they put together this blue ribbon panel It got presidential attention. That's why I date the book from then, because that was the first time the issue got presidential attention. And by the way, we were already um, 25% above pre-industrial levels in terms of greenhouse gases. So um, one of the prescient quotes in that report, this Blue Ribbon Panel report, was that if we don't take action, we may see changes in climate by the year 2000. This is 1979. They were off by 15 years. We began to see changes in the very next decade, but uh, they were dead right. And it's remarkable given the understanding of climate at that time that they made that statement. So then of course, uh, Carter was driven not as, as much by the notion of energy independence as he was by climate change in terms of promoting renewables, because keep in mind at the same time he was also promoting coal, because the OPEC oil embargo with the long gas lines and everything else Um, registered deep in the American psyche. So then the Iran hostage crisis happens. Reagan comes into office um, with a quasi-libertarian agenda um, and um, appoints a bunch of foxes to guard every chicken coop. And um, all action on climate basic goes into the back burner. Action on renewables go into the back burner. Fast forward. And this is one of my iconic stories in the book. George H.W. Bush is elected. And some of you may remember that um, in 1988, when he was running for office, environment was a big deal. Um, We made, at Time Magazine, uh, Planet Earth, the man of the year. And um, climate was one of the main sections. And he he made a speech in 88 in which he said, uh, those of you who are worried about the greenhouse effect should consider the White House effect and he promised to have a conference on climate change and was going to do all these things. Somewhere between when he was running for president and when he became president, the lobbyist effect came into play. Yes, he ultimately had that conference, but no participant was not allowed to mention global warming, which is akin to having a conference on pandemics today and not being able to mention COVID. So what that showed you was the power of the fossil fuel lobby, you know, to totally, to cause the president to reverse course. Then Clinton comes into office. Um, and Al Gore is his vice president, you know, whose nickname was global warming in the White House. Um, and I went to uh, participated in a White House conference on climate change in the, in the late 70, late 90s. And Clinton said, you know, I'm, I'm with you. I, I want to do something. I believe this is real, but I can't get ahead of the American people. Um, in, in essence, he was paraphrasing something um, that FDR had said in the 30s, where he said, you've convinced me, now go out and make me do it. And what he was throwing the ball back to the participants in the thing saying, you need to mobilize public opinion. That was right before the issue became politicized and mobilizing public opinion. So it basically went out the window. Of course, after um, Clinton, we had George W. Bush. um, And again, appointing foxes to guard chicken coops in terms of the environment and climate. I mean, coal lobbyists took over the interior department, for instance. And uh, once again, uh, the issue is the back burner and people are saying it's a hoax. Um, Then Obama comes in and then Trump. And so we had this seesaw in the largest economy in the world, you know, between treating the issue as serious and then half the time, literally 16 years of the climate era, treating it as either a hoax or a threat to business. That mixed message registered on the rest of the world. We were not the leader. We're as you recall, the US dropped out of the Paris Agreement. Um, that's the opposite of leadership. I mean, we're back into it now. But I mean, uh, the US does bear a lot of responsibility for the lack of action, and it's because of the uh, seesaw politics. You know, and, 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 you know, going back to renewables and, and this notion that had we, had we, had we uh, spoken with one voice, we might've shifted. Um, a lot of people say renewables weren't ready in the early 90s. Um, and to a degree they're right, but I use the analogy, it's like a football coach um, who shoots a star player in the leg and then benches him because he's not ready to play. You know, renewables, had we continued and the, the momentum and the development um, in any of those administrations, they would have reached grid parity long before when they did. And they've, they've all reached grid parity now, but that de- that could have been advanced because of the economies of scale and everything else that would have come in had... China chose to do a mixed portfolio of renewables and fossil fuels to power their industrialization.
1: Mm. I want to come to that in a moment about the 1990s. But before we leave um, the 1980s, just go back to tell tell me how you inadvertently helped President George H.W. Bush become the environmental president, as he termed himself.
2: Right. Well, I was uh, writing for Time back then, and I got a call from a guy named Mike Deland, who was in the EPA, and he said, "You know, um, Dukakis may have made uh, the the biggest, sort of, most expensive mistake in the history of uh, of the of the EPA, in the sense that um, Boston Harbor was a sewer in the 1980s. It was disgusting, um, and." Back then, if uh, you had a certain time frame that you could apply for federal money, and they'd assume ninety percent of the cost of cleaning it up, and Dukakis didn't do that, and he called it the most expensive public policy mistake in the history of New England. That's what the Scott DeLand told me. Um, and so um, I thought that's a story, and you know I'm, you know I'm, I'm nonpartisan as a journalist, so I thought I'll write the story. Um, and I go up to Boston. I I asked Dukakis about it, and he said. Uh, and his people, and, and and they said, we're proud of our record on, on Boston Harbor. And I, I thought, that's ridiculous, so I wrote the story. Next thing you know, George H.W. Bush is out in the harbor with a bullhorn saying, I'm going to clean up Boston Harbor. And Boston Harbor, um, I, I, this may not resonate with the with British audience, but um, releasing a, a convicted murderer named Willie Horton, and then the picture of Dukakis in a tank where he looked absurd were the three things that basically help propel uh, uh, Bush into the White House, even though I didn't want
0: him to be there. (laughs) Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these 3 numbers. 37, 000, 25 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free at netsuite.com/squared. That's netsuite.com/squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com/squared.
1: I can see some questions coming in, so please do put it your question. I now want to come to the 1990s. Eugene, you mentioned the battle to avert the climate changes we're seeing today was lost in the 1990s. So just tell me a bit more about um, why the Kyoto Protocol of 1997 was ineffectual. Why did China and India... Which could have taken a lead on renewables, as you write about. Why did they double down on on coal to fuel their industrialization in the 1990s? Well,
2: they had the coal. Uh, China had the fourth largest coal reserves in the world, so it's sitting there tempting. And also, they look at the West, and we're basically saying, "Do as we say, not as we do." So we we're, we weren't speaking with one voice. Um, and the other thing is, is that to a degree I didn't appreciate until I started doing uh, research on the book, the Chinese leadership was totally freaked out by Tiananmen Square um, just a few years earlier. And they wanted to drive economic progress down to the middle class and the, and the poorer people as fast as possible. So they wanted to industrialize very rapidly. Now there were those um, who were arguing that they could leapfrog, you know, and and, 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 and indeed, there was an economic argument without a, a grid in many parts of China for distributed power and all that, and renewables, um, but no frogs left. I mean, again, uh, the mixed messages uh, c- coming from the West, and, and we weren't willing to help subsidize or pay for any of that, um, with those of us in the West. Um, but all right, so there, there, that's, one, that's, that, that's one part of it. But another part of it was, again, this pernicious notion that we had time. And I say pernicious um, because nothing happens if you think you have time, but something worse actually happened. Um, The IPCC, which I'm sure all of your listeners know about, this giant consortium of scientists and policymakers, was formed to sort of aggregate the the -the state-of-the-art science on the issue and issue a series of reports, assessments. Um, And what happened was the very structure of the IPCC Created opportunities for those who would delay action in the sense that these are giant reports, 8,000 pages, something like that. Um, but the, all that most policymakers would read would be the, uh, the summary for policymakers. The exact, it's like 40, 90 pages at the beginning of the report, um, or the press release about the summary for policymakers. And that is where the chapters in all these reports were you know, totally undertaken with intellectual honesty. But they, you know, every country on earth is a participant in this process, pretty much. And many, a lot of these countries, Saudi Arabia, notably, and others, uh, were you know, um, petro economies and did not want action on climate change. Also, business interests at that point did not want action on climate change. And at every opportunity, they would try and you know, encourage ambiguity, mute the language, call for more study. As a consequence, that first study gave tons of ammunition to those who would delay action. I'll give you an example. Um, uh, One of the notable economists who was an early, uh, who made early attempts to try to integrate the costs of climate change into economic models is a guy named William Nordhaus at Yale. Um, He would take the IPC studies where there would be statements saying the thermal inertia of the oceans will delay any signal from warming many decades into the next century. and other ambiguities uh, from the, the, you know that would be amplified by the uh, those who would amplify them. And he, he created these models to try and model the costs. And his early models came up with inconsequential effects on GDP 120 years out, or 110 years out in 2100. One model, um, I think it is a paper, Rolling the Dice, 1993 paper, I think. Um, he he had an estimate of a quarter of one percent hit to GDP in the U.S. in 2100 from climate change. Put that in perspective. I mean, he said, maybe it'll go up to one percent. No one is going to jump out of their chair and say, we got to do something if it's that inconsequential. And indeed, um, um, William Niskanen, another uh, libertarian economist who was then head of the Cato Institute, took those estimates and went to Congress and said, well, you know, here we have this distinguished economist, here we have the IPCC. It looks like the costs of doing nothing right now are very slim, and the costs of climate change are not far off in the future and, and, and not very much. When Nordhaus, you know, was intellectually honest, he was trying to do the, the right thing, but his, some of his assumptions were absurd. One of them was that since 87% of the U.S. economy is indoors, it's not going to be affected by climate change. Now, a junior high school student could shoot holes in that assumption. I mean, the port of uh, uh, New Orleans probably thinks, well, you know, we are affected. Houston hit by Hurricane Harvard, we're affected, there goes in the fires. But anyway, that that was one of his assumptions. Um, and But at the same time, he polled scientists for the costs of climate change um, in the future. Their average estimate were 30 times the estimates of the economists he polled. Um, because they actually, understood that the derivative effects of climate change were going to affect agriculture and everything else. Um, now, the so back when we needed <laughs> economists in the IPCC to sort of say, we've got to do something now, they were saying we have tons of time.
1: I'm going to ask you um, a couple more questions, then we'll come to the, uh, the questions uh, from the audience. Tons of great questions have come in. Um, so, Eugene, you quote Sherwood Roland, from when he accepted the Nobel Prize in Chemistry uh, in 1995, that's some 20 years after he had warned about a hole in the ozone layer. He said, "What is the use of having developed a science well enough to make predictions if, in the end, all we're willing to do is stand around and wait for them to come true?" And in terms of greenhouse gas emissions, you um, you, you've already said how much it's increased since um, uh, you know 1979. You also write that. Right now, they're more than 60% above the levels of 1990, the decade that you said we lost um, the battle. So, why do you think things are different now, which is um, what you uh, write about in the book?
2: (laughs) Well, on one, the delay has cost us dearly. Um, Two and a half billion people have been added to the population. The average person globally emits uh, about four tons of greenhouse gases, which it's responsible for four tons of emissions, more actually, 4.7 a year. That's 10 billion tons more than we had in 1990 when it was already a problem. So that the, the rock is that much bigger, the hill is that much steeper, the time is that much shorter. That said, um, we do see these remarkable changes. The business community was a, and finance community was a drag anchor for most of the climate change era. Now, it's really understanding that this is a risk, you know, a fundamental risk and it's, it, and it's hard upon us. And so things are rapidly changing. One thing that's happening is that money is flowing in to renewables and into all these innovations. And that's nothing but good because with capital, you get innovation. Um, and what we, uh, another uh, parallel with COVID is what we saw was that when the global community acts together, We got a vaccine in a year. The previous vaccine took seven years to make. We now see an explosion of innovation in battery technology and storage technology, all these things. EVs have have expanded far more rapidly than anybody expected 15 years ago. Um, And these transitions can occur rapidly. Um, We have technologies now to vastly reduce the carbon intensity of steel production, for instance. one at 8 billion tons a year, 10, 10% of emissions, right? Um, uh, 2 billion tons a year, sorry, uh, 8% of emissions. Um, you can actually take carbon out of the atmosphere, um, combine it with calcium, um, and make synthetic limestone, which can be used in concrete. In other words, we have technologies off the shelf with no, no breakthroughs needed, to do things, we need the will to do it. Now, I did mention that we have this fundamental blind spot in the way we do business. We've created an economy that is built to drive off cliffs, And we, we have to sort of figure out how not to do that. Um, that I think will require some political change. Um, but we also, I think, ha- have the ability to sort of come up with an, ag- an international agreement that would have an impact. Um, one that is simple so that there's not endless negotiations, one that it's universal, and one that's deployable now. And um, I propose at the end of the book a universal tariff, um, that if you met a certain goal for reductions in greenhouse gases, every country on earth, no tariff. If you didn't, tariff. Um, I, I explain it, and I won't go into it in detail here. But I do think there are things we can do, and there are also technologies on the near horizon that are just astonishing in their capacity to reduce reductions. We're in for some climate change, we're already experiencing it, we can't roll that back. But we certainly can avert disaster because what we're facing in, even if every nation on earth abided by the Paris Agreement, temperatures would rise between 2.7 and 3.7 degrees Celsius. They haven't been that high um, since before the ice ages, some three million years ago plenty of life back then, but there weren't any humans. If you look even at the the, uh, projections from the IPC report for uh, food production, maize or corn production in the best case scenario is going to be lower than 7% than it is now. And the worst 27%. Wheat, 22% and 5%. Rice and soybeans, so on, a little less. But the point is, is that that won't even feed the 7.8 billion people alive today, much less the 2 billion um, who are being added. So we actually, the main message is we have to do something and we have to start now.
1: I think you've already answered this, so I'm going to ask it because I was quite nervous to ask this before. Is it too late? It can't be.
2: I mean, we have to do this, it, and, and we can. Um, I'll give you one more example. I, I just wrote a piece, um, I'll be out in a, in a little while, about the promise of deep geothermal. Between 5 and 12 miles below the surface of the Earth, there's an almost infinite source of heat of about 1,000 degrees Fahrenheit, right? It hasn't been accessible because it's in bedrock, that is uh, basement rock, which is 5 to 10 times harder than sedimentary rock. MIT scientists have come up with a way of vaporizing that rock and being able to access it in 100 days. That could supply electricity cheaper than any fossil fuel plant today and could retrofit because 75 to 80% of the world's fossil... uh, electrical generating plants or steam turbines and you can use steam from the heated by the deep earth. You can just fit it right in. So things like that hold enormous promise, so it's not too late, but we got to do them. You know, we can't just know about them.
1: Tons of great questions coming in for you, Eugene, so I'm going to delve into them. So the first question, Eugene, for you comes from Alex, and he asks, for us folks who don't work in sectors that are able to enact change more directly, how do we come to terms with this reality? I try to live small, won't be having children. I'm a 30-year-old female, and I enjoy the small things. I'm convinced that the human condition will block any meaningful change at scale. Is this the reality of things? Look,
2: we all recycle. If you'd asked me in the 70s whether everybody would recycle, I'd say, there's no way. People aren't going to do it. You know, we all use seatbelts in cars. Um, and for years, I would cheat on that. And now, <laughs> now I regularly use it. People change um, and norms change. Um, I assume it's roughly similar, but in the U.S., consumer spending 70 percent of the economy. What that means is or, average, ordinary people have the power to change corporate behavior, to change government behavior just through their spending patterns. You know, if, if, if we if 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 Everybody did uh, was sensitive to climate issues in their spending and their lifestyle choices, et cetera. The politicians would guarantee you would follow suit, and so would business. So, um, power is in the hands of ordinary people. It's not. It, it you don't just have to be a. Uh, and certainly, I think the elites. What we've seen is that no one is a. No politician has been a leader on this um, in terms of staking their career successfully on climate change. Um, you know, they've, a bunch of climate deniers have been elected prime minister in, um, in, uh, or chosen as prime minister in Australia. Um, I, in the U.S., we've seen uh, people tr- try to run on climate and get nowhere, like Tom Steyer and Jay Inslee. Um, and I don't know what the situation is in, uh, um, in the U.K., uh, but, I, I mean, the U.K. has been uh, much better on climate and much more consistent, I would say, uh, than the U.S., although it, it did... Um, stay with coal a long time. But point is, is that, um, you know, don't count on the politicians to save us, count on consumers demanding change, people demanding change. Um, And then, um, you know, just this this change in the attitude of the business community is, is indeed a big deal.
1: Thank you. Next question has come in for you. Do you think the sanctions recently imposed on Russia will drive the world towards a low carbon economy? or increase our dependence on fossil fuels?
2: Well, that is that is a fascinating and terrific question because I think about that a lot. Um, it is, couldn't have come at the worst possible time in terms of the, not the sanctions, but the invasion of the Ukraine. Um, because one, it distracts from this. I, I mean, this is a global threat we're facing and it's very near. And there have been calls for increased drilling as a result of this. Of course, if you want to, Lower gas prices and have more available uh, fuels. The best way to do that is to reduce demand. And indeed, in the in the states, we're seeing a lot of people now buying EVs who didn't before, just because the uh, fifty to eighty percent increase in gas prices um, in some of the in some of the places over the past year, which have made eight, you know, if you can get eighty miles to a gallon um, with a, a plug-in hybrid, or even better with an EV, faced with those costs, you can do it. So. That is the good news on this side. Drilling is not gonna help. Um, and it also, the, the last thing we need is a step backward and increased reliance on fossil fuels. And uh, all we're doing by doing that is um, basically empowering these uh, homicidal psychopaths and Uh, around the world who are in charge of the petro-states.
1: Eugene, are you encouraged by the efforts business is now making to go green, or is it too little, too late?
2: Well, a lot of it is greenwashing, and a lot of it is just cosmetic, but a lot of it's real. I mean, the the head of Volkswagen, which I think is the largest car maker in the world, was on 60 Minutes the other day saying they're gonna have a 50% EV fleet um, in a matter of a few years. I mean, that is a major commitment, Um, and that's real. Now, of course, they've all been humiliated by Tesla, which has a market capitalization larger than the entire auto industry combined, um, by ignoring it for as many years as they have. But they're all playing catch up and uh, they, wanna, they, they, they realize the EV market is only going to expand as charge, charge, charge stations proliferate, battery technology gets better, um, it gets easier to own one. And then, of course, the benefits are, are, are manifest. Um, so as the EV migrates to um, uh, to the middle class, as, as opposed to the affluent, it's, that's going to explode. We see that all over the place. Um, but, you know, people game things. This is one of the fragilities of the way we do business is that it's easy to game things. And we've seen that time and time again with initiatives on climate change, um, where the, uh, where the Clean development mechanism was used to, in some cases, finance a coal-fired plant in India. Um, so you're going to have some of that. But on the other hand, um, you know, I think the momentum is in that direction. It is, it, it's, it's, it's not sufficient, but it's heading in the right direction.
1: Next question for you is: What adjustments to our political economic system would create the right incentives for the action on climate we urgently need?
2: That's a, again a terrific question. One I address at the end of the book. Um, I think we need ways of representing the long term in in the way uh, in in the way in which we do business, and I think Europe is ahead of the U.S. on that. Um, in the sense of there's there's more. Um, Regulation in terms of what you can and can't do, I think. Whereas we, if we presume a, pursue a libertarian path, as we have been tending in the United States, we're, we're going to go off a cliff. We're not going to deal with climate change. So we have to sort of bring in a, a, a set of incentives and disincentives that I think can only come from either the tax system or from government um, uh, or, or regulation in government. Um, to sort of represent this long-term threat and sort of guide um, uh, businesses in the right direction, I think the tax uh, uh, t- uh, uh, taxes are probably the most efficient way to change behavior because by you 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 allow people to make a choice. They want to do a polluting thing, they pay for it. I mean, uh, and I mean you, you have congestion pricing in London, and uh, I assume that's worked pretty well, um, or at least the last times I was there it was working pretty well. Um, I mean that that that's the kind of thing where you at the at the the city or state level, you can incentivize people. You're not telling them not to do anything. You're just making it very expensive if they do it. That's what we did with cigarettes in the states, where it's eight bucks a pack now, and like seven of that is taxes
1: um, and the next question is. It is easy to criticize past leaders for their failure to tackle climate change, but how do we get around the problem that human beings are hardwired to be short-termist and will always postpone future pain for current pleasure?
2: Um, Well, in the old days, you know how we got around it? It was religion. In the really old days, I mean, there'd be taboos. You cut that tree and your wife would be barren and your crops would die, you know. Um, And then, of course, but you know, when you think about a lot of the religious prescriptions, they actually were either ecologically sound or health sound in one way or another. That's no longer the case, obviously. So what do we have? Well, um, we have government. <laughs> and um, you're, the, the, the questioner is absolutely right. We are wired to be short-term thinkers. And so we need an external agency to sort of remind us of the long term, um, because we can't all be, be good citizens. I mean, it just... Uh, and we can't all be long-term thinkers. And, we, and in fact, um, most of our population in the States here isn't really engaged in the issue, even if they worry about it a bit. So that is you know, where you, would, uh, you, you put these incentives in, in the pricing of, like, I think now uh, insurers are beginning to price in these risks of climate change. It's going to have a dramatic effect. And I mean it, it, it could be a create financial crisis down the road but we uh, we can talk about that if you like
1: next question is uh, rather than a universal climate change tariff which would be hard to implement do we not just need to invest resources in an affordable technology for removing carbon from the atmosphere or a new way of creating energy such as nuclear um, fusion
2: well you know nuclear is always there but it It takes a while, and in the United States, we have this not in my backyard, it's called NIMBY, uh, phenomenon where nobody wants a nuclear plant next to their community, so good luck with that. Um, Fusion has always held promise, and I hope that someday it will. There are other technologies there, but the, the problem with not having a universal agreement is that the problem that's dogged us all along, the free rider problem, and that's essentially what China um, in India, were doing is they were taking advantage of their exemption from the Kyoto Treaty to uh, to just industrialize, powering in any way they wanted, regardless of the cost to the future or to the, um, uh, the citizens in the city through air pollution. So I don't think that um, piecemeal works. I think we need something universal. I don't. By the way, I don't think. A, universal tariff would be hard to implement. The World Trade Organization has already said that they want to get involved with with climate change, and uh, they'd be a natural place to sort of see it. It's almost, um, we can now monitor um, sources, at, certainly at the national level, and even more precise that for greenhouse gas emissions. So it'd be easy to see who is who was playing ball and who wasn't.
1: Eugene, can you just tell me about how the insurance industry is still insuring housing and other stuff in areas of high risk from extreme weather events? Could this lead to the next great financial collapse?
2: I I think it absolutely could lead to a a financial crisis and sooner than we might think. Um, I had the opportunity to watch firsthand the great financial crisis of 2008 because I was uh, chief investment strategist for a hedge fund. And um, what I'd noticed back then was that um, people were getting mortgages that shouldn't have gotten mortgages. In other words, in the US, for instance, 65% was the previous sort of high for the percentage of people who owned, um, who had uh, who owned their own homes, it rose to 69%. So that 4% of people wouldn't have qualified under earlier underwriting standards. And then we all saw what happened. The reason that happened was that, I'm giving a little background on the financial crisis to sort of understand the next crisis. And the reason that happened was that the banks, instead of holding the mortgages, were selling them into these giant billion dollar securitizations called mortgage-backed securities. And because they weren't holding the mortgage, they relaxed their underwriting standards. And this huge risk was built into these piles of mortgages. And everybody said, well, you know, this isn't going to be a problem because subprime mortgages were only 5% of the, uh, of the housing market. Um, but it turned out it was because the subprime mortgages constituted a lot of the lower end of these giant securitizations. And essentially, as people began defaulting on their mortgages and there was foreclosures, um, those mortgages uh, were worth uh, very, very little. And the whole daisy chain, the whole house of cards collapsed. And we watched this firsthand. And actually, the fund I work for um, did the same thing that was uh, shown in the big short um, uh, to try and hedge ourselves and protect ourselves. Well, let's say fast forward to the uh, what's happening now with climate. And what we've seen is that millions and millions of people have moved into essentially what we could call harm's way um, by moving into zones uh, vulnerable to sea level rise, to floods and to fires, mainly because insurers have kept uh, writing policies that don't reflect that risk. And what happens um, in that case um, is that It acts as the perverse incentive for people to move into those areas. And as we've discussed, the insurers had a sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card because they feel they can always not renew policies after a year. But then you have to think about what the consequences, or they can raise their prices, what the consequences for the housing uh, market is if, in fact, insurers start pulling out of these areas. What that might mean is that in in many of these at-risk places, people won't be able to get a mortgage. now, it wouldn't be a problem if everybody just stayed in their homes all along and paid off their mortgages. People have to leave. They're empty messers. They retire, one reason or another. Um, and then they have to sell their house, but the buyer has to get a mortgage in most cases. And so you could see the same kind of crisis that happened in 2008, or rather it's all of a sudden there's a drought of buyers and people who can't get the protection they need to get a mortgage, um, and it could quickly morph into a financial crisis. The difference being, of course, is that uh, the great financial crisis was a financial crisis and once trillions in liquidity was injected into the system, the ship eventually righted. What will happen with the climate change financial crisis, however, is it'll get worse every year because it will not be better the next year than it was in the, the year that might, where the tipping point might have occurred and the crisis began, and the next year will be worse than the year after that will be worse. And so, in a large number of parts of the U.S. and Europe, you are going to be seeing an, an area where people might be living in, an, in a place where, for a combination of various reasons—whether it's fire, flood, sea level rise, windstorms—they um, their houses will become unsalable, and that will, uh, you know, be the uh, you know the 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 trigger for 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 a uh, for, for financial crisis. I won't say it's the next financial crisis because we've got a lot of triggers around the world that aren't related to climate, but
1: um, a climate one looms
2: large down the road.
1: I would say thank you, but now I'm just worried. <laughs> but thank you. <laughs> I'm going to end with a question that um, I think um, would be um, a way of um, giving us a way forward. So uh, this question has come in, um, asks... Eugene, which new technology to lower emissions gives you the most hope?
2: Well, I have a ready answer for that. Deep geothermal. Um, There's a company called Quays Energy out of uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, that is a year away from doing a pilot project with that technology I talked about, which is using um, what are called millimeter wave, uh, wave beams to actually vaporize deep rock and access this deep heat um, within 100 days, this commencement of drilling. And there, 61% of the US energy is produced by steam turbines. Enormous process, pro, um, promise for reducing emissions drastically, given how, how important electricity is um, in, in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, they're going to have a two operational drill wells on tw- in 2024. That's just two years away, not even. Um, so that I think that is a game changer, not to use an overused term, um, and, and has enormous process, uh, promise. But there are plenty of other technologies as well. I mean, wind power, of course, is expanding. Tidal power, Great Britain uses it. Um, lots of places use it. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're seeing the, a, a renewal of the kind of innovation we saw in the end of the Victorian era not happen a moment too soon.
1: I think that's a great note to end on. Um, my thanks to Eugene Linden, and please pick up his new book, Fire and Flood, A People's History of Climate Change from 1979 to the Present. It's a fascinating read about the history of this critical issue, and um, he has mentioned it, but there are some really interesting ideas um, at the end of the book about how we can avert um, this disaster. So I urge everyone who's watching and listening to pick up his book, Fire and Flood.